This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. More labor trouble to talk about this morning. The United Truckers Association saying that its members have now voted unanimously in favor of job action at the Port of Vancouver. And this is all in protest of a program that looks to phase out older trucks. The program aimed at banning those older vehicles from the port is set to start in September. The association saying this is a program that if it goes ahead will impose some crippling costs on drivers. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Dave Earl, president of the BC Trucking Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. Uh, this is something I know we've talked about this before. It is set to go ahead in September. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the fact that this is still moving forward and truckers have now voted, voted in favor of job action? Well, we're very much in favor of the program uh, as it moves forward because when we uh, look at our industry and start to work on decarbonization, uh, we recognize the need to advance and to bring new equipment into all fleets. Um, the drainage fleet is about 2% of the overall uh, fleet in the province, and uh, it runs locally in the lower mainland primarily. Uh, and so we look at it as a real opportunity uh, to bring this type of, uh, of process in to help modernize the fleet. What about the cost to truckers, though, and truck drivers who are saying this is going to be just impossible for some of them to comply with these new rules of having a truck that's, that's not more than 20 years old? Well, Jill, the, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that this is about 350 of the 1,800 or so trucks in the fleet. About 80% of the fleet is already compliant uh, and has been for many years. This is not a new program. Uh, the program has been announced for many years. It's been amended many times in an effort to make it uh, more accessible for industry. And uh, really what we have is about uh, 300 to 400 of these uh remaining vehicles who have decided uh, that over time and over the years available that they're not going to make the changes necessary. Uh, And in our view, that's just not going to work. We're going to have to make these changes and move forward. It's not impossible. Uh, It's not crippling. 80% of the fleet is already running it. Uh, In our view, these are, are, are important standards that need to be implemented. But for those then three to four hundred truckers, if they don't have the money or they can't afford to upgrade their vehicle, what are they going to do? Uh, in those circumstances, they're going to have to work with their vendors. They're going to have to work with their finance companies. Um, this is, again, nothing new. Uh, this has been announced for many, many years. They've had lots of time to prepare, uh, lots of time to work forward, and lots of, uh, of changes have been made to accommodate these in these uh, these operators. Uh, the program was originally going to be a seven-year rolling truck age program uh, that was implemented in 2019. Um, now, since uh, the original conception of the program, it's been changed many, many times. Uh, it's been on the uh, you know as as a well-announced, well-prepared program since 2015. 
Uh, and just recently, it's moved from a 10-year-old in truck age program to 12. Um, so there's been real strides made to help operators uh, come into compliance. Um, you know, yes, it, it is expensive um, either to upgrade your, your units. Um, but you know, one of the things I think is important to recognize is that it's not just upgrading units. It's bringing trucks into compliance with existing law. Um, these operators have been running uh, trucks that aren't in compliance with emissions uh, regulation right now, and that needs to change. And so when you say upgrade units, because I think when we hear about the costs and the truck drivers, that the, the members who have voted in favour of job action, it sounds like they have to replace the vehicle completely. But are there other ways that truck drivers can become compliant with these rules? Yes, they don't have to replace the vehicle completely necessarily. It depends on what they're driving. Many vehicles have been what's called deleted. This is where the operator will actually take the vehicle to a facility and have the equipment, the emissions control equipment, either removed or deactivated deliberately. Now, it's not necessarily these drivers that have done that. Very often, it's the original purchaser back in 2012, 2011, sometimes in 2002, 2003. Um, They'll actually have gone in and deleted this equipment. In some circumstances, it's a matter of reactivating, replacing. Sometimes it's a matter of bringing uh, new parts into play. So, I mean, those costs can still be significant. I mean, we're, we're looking at many thousands of dollars, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to replace the entire unit. Uh, for those drivers that are driving classic vehicles that uh, they look at as, as collectibles, um, those can be brought into compliance. Now, it's a bit of a longer process if you do want to you know, replace the entire drivetrain because this is more, um, you know, to get to compliance, it's more than just uh, activating emission from, uh, equipment. But there are many, many paths to get there. Uh, and Dave, what about though uh, the the idea that the, the the few truckers, the 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 number that you mentioned that that will won't be compliant in these rules when they come in in September, uh, they're kind of being unfairly targeted. When you look at the bigger picture of container ships that are uh, that are waiting and burning fuel while they wait to, to come into port, uh, trucks accessing other ports that don't have the same rules, and and that that this is really targeting a small group. The largest uh, port in, uh, on the west coast of North America, Los Angeles, Long Beach, already has programs like this. Um, Vancouver is very much there. And again, we look at it and say we can't be laggards, we have to be leaders. Uh, in terms of targeting a specific uh, section of the transportation industry, I can say unequivocally, every single sector of the transportation industry is working to decarbonize. This includes uh, you know, such initiatives at the port in terms of shore power, so Ships will shut their power off while in port. Uh, it includes marine companies investing literally billions of dollars in new technology to run LNG ships. Uh, and I should also say, Jill, that we are in active conversation with this government in terms of these types of standards and this issue in the industry in British Columbia. But it's continent-wide. Under direction of the Biden administration, the Environmental Protection Agency had hearings in March to figure out what to do with this issue with trucks right across the entire fleet in North America. So this is just the start. It's not being picked on. It's not being targeted. It's being recognized as an opportunity to say, we need to do better. Let's get going. This is coming for every commercial vehicle eventually. All right, Dave Earl, we'll leave it there for this morning. But thank you, as always, for your time. Appreciate it. 
Anytime. Thanks for having me. Dave Earl is the president of the BC Trucking Association. Again, talking about those new rules, uh, the program aimed at banning the older trucks uh, with higher emissions coming in September. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, big news out of the UK today. As you've been hearing on the news, Boris Johnson resigning after a series of scandals that has rocked his government. Also, several resignations of ministers as well. So what does the future hold? Well, joining us to talk more about that is Crystal Gomansing, Global News European Bureau Chief. Uh, she is in London this morning. Crystal, thanks for joining us. A busy, busy day for you. Good morning. Busy day uh, where you are. Uh, tell us a little bit about how everything unfolded with this resignation. Yeah, it's just a little bit busy today. A bit of a, you know, a surprise that he came out so quickly because after last night, people knew that uh, the, the, the push to have him out was incredibly strong, but people thought he would hold he came out of number 10 this morning, um, kind of jovial is actually how I would describe him and address the British public. Uh, never used the word, um, I resign, never said sorry for all of the scandals that actually led to him being pushed out by his own party, but rather he kind of hyped up all of his accomplishments, uh, talked about the millions of people who voted for him and gave him such a strong mandate. And, and he said that's one of the reasons why he was holding on so so desperately trying to keep his job one because you know he did like his job but also out of uh, a sense of obligation and duty he called it you know a, a wonderful job the best job and he talked about how he got Brexit done, how the UK had the fastest vaccine rollout under him and, and you know, his leadership on the world stage when it comes to support for Ukraine and, and uh, trying to, uh, you know, put pressure on, on Russia and Vladimir Putin. But he said, ultimately, when, you know, the... Um, Herd instinct is what he, uh, the phrase he used, moves in Westminster, it moves, and that uh, he was leaving, and the phrase that will probably go down in history attached to Boris Johnson and his resignation is, them's the breaks. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, people were a little surprised by that, but uh, you're right, certainly won't be forgetting that uh, anytime soon. What does this actually mean, though, for, for the leadership? So stepping down as the Conservative Party leader, uh, he's still, though, leading as far as the Prime Minister. What does this mean as far as the future of governance in the UK? This is such an interesting point, right? Because if you think of this this massive revolt within his own party, his closest um, cabinet members and ministers looking at him and saying, you're not fit for purpose, yet he could potentially stay on for months as a caretaker prime minister. So it'll be interesting to see what really push forward and try to get a, a new leader selected right away? Do they ramp that up and make it happen quickly? Do they let him sort of just, you know, t stay on as a caretaker role? There's already been uh, Tory members who have said, well, you know, he's not really making policy. He's just going to be there sort of executing things and, and overseeing things. But if he was that, um, you know, uh, worrisome as a leader that they pushed him out to keep him there for a little bit longer is interesting. So we're waiting to see 
exactly what happens. But he has named a, a, a new cabinet to continue on for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, so it is sort of a change but no change situation here in the UK. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it and you see uh, the headline that he's resigned and, uh, like you said, amid these scandals and all of the resignations in cabinet, uh, but then is staying on, it almost seems a bit anticlimactic. Well, and is and it almost starts to change the story because the longer that timeline goes, the more people will forget as to why he was pushed out, right? Because it does tend to diffuse a little bit. We've seen scandal after scandal after scandal. You know, he's leaving almost three years to the date. It was July 2019 when he took office. So, uh, you know, there might uh, a little bit of the anger and, and the, the sense of, of frustration around him may diffuse a little bit. Well, there's all these scandals. The scandals aren't new, but maybe what is new is how the voters were reacting to Boris Johnson. Because you remember, he had that non-confidence vote and he survived it. Um, but then he went on and his party lost two by-elections. So he went from being the, you know, uh, scandal, um, you know, plagued prime uh, prime minister to who, but the one who got stuff done to scandal plagued and lost two critical by-elections. So we'll see what comes in the uh, next few days and how quickly they move to uh, select a new leader. And so and what I find interesting too, so the, the new leader, that winner, becomes both the conservative leader as well as the next prime minister in the UK. Uh, like you said, Boris Johnson says he's going to stay in office until that happens, but does he have the authority to govern? Yes, in a caretaker role. So right. it, we're not going to see we're not going to see new legislation. We're not going to see new policy. No sort of uh, new bits introduced or, or new directions taken. But it'll just sort of be the civil servants that will continue to execute the 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 policies. That- the books and the plans as they've been set out. Um, so nothing necessarily will change. But depending on how long that timeline goes, um, you also can't say you're going to push on and, and, and continue to serve the people and get back to serving the people if you're not, if you're just sort of in a, in a holding pattern for a couple of months, right? So it's an interesting situation of we need to get him out because we need to get to work. But then also, if he's still there, are we really getting to work? Interesting, uh, indeed. Uh, many, uh, I know, will be watching uh, to see what happens next. Crystal Gomancing, we'll leave it there today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Crystal Gomancing, Global News, European Bureau Chief. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, we are continuing to talk about the shortage of family doctors in this province. Still estimated about 900,000 people in BC do not have a family doctor. Uh, We chatted with Vaughn Palmer about this yesterday. He was talking about the offer to this year's graduating class of physicians, a $25,000 bonus, loan forgiveness to go into family practice. But it looks like even that is not a big enough incentive. So joining us now to talk about what is happening and possible solutions to this issue in BC is Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. Dr. McLeod, thank you so much for joining the show again. 
Joe, anytime. Thanks for having me. I, I wanted to talk w- with you about this in part uh, from what Vaughn was saying yesterday. Uh, there's also been a lot of coverage specifically on the North Shore. I know where uh, you operate. Uh, you've been talking about doctors there resigning. Uh, how would you describe the situation right now as far as looking at the family doctor shortage? Um, I mean, it seems like there's not a week that goes by where somebody else isn't leaving. And you have to remember when a when a family doctor leaves, there's sort of 900 to 1,200 people who who no longer have easy access to care. And and where do they go? We talk about going to urgent care centers, but you know, for anybody who's had to go to one, I mean, they're they're very busy. You're waiting hours, and it's not really longitudinal care. It's sort of, hey, I have a quick emergency. I've got to deal with. And, and, you know, when you don't have that longitudinal primary care, things get missed, right? Like, how do you get your mammogram? How do you get your pap test? What, what did, you know, who's sort of looking at your overall picture and saying, let's look at some preventative health things and that sort of stuff. So all that stuff falls through the cracks. And it's, it's a huge problem for patients. You know, you think of the, the patient who has some, you know, underlying chronic lung disease, right? I mean, they, they've not just got to get meds renewed. They've got to go for routine testing and get an updated scan of their lungs and all that sort of stuff that just sort of doesn't happen when you don't have a primary care doctor. And when you talk about that as well, and again, even just looking at the North Shore with the resignations of general practitioners, of family doctors, are there other doctors that are even taking on any of these patients or do the patients that lose their doctors end up exactly like you said, trying to find other ways of finding healthcare where they can find it? Well, that's, I think that's part of the problem, right? Because, you know, a practice closes and, you know, you may be directed to the BC College of Physician website where there's really nobody taking on new patients or, you know, there's these divisions of family practice where you get put onto a waiting list. But, you know, if you're number 9,852 on a waiting list, that doesn't really help you. And it's it's not like more family doctors are coming on stream to ever really reduce that waiting list. The number of people who are leaving um, is is at a way higher rate than the new people who are coming on board, right? So, you know, I, I'm not really sure, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I'm not really sure what happens over the next few years as more and more people lose their GP. It, it really is already at the crisis point, but you can just see it's, it's going to get worse. This ship is going to take a while to turn around. And I, I feel for government because there's not this simple, easy solution, right? You know, it's it's not just, hey, here's more money to throw at the problem. The, the, the job for family doctors has become extremely onerous. You know, they're working their sort of 80 hours a week. And it I think a lot of them are just burnt right out. And you know, it's not it's not really just money that's going to entice people back. And, and you'll, you'll hear a lot of doctors and even patients will say, I wish my doctor had more time with me. Well, it's simple math as well, right? Because if your doctor has twice as much time with you, they see half as many people. Now, you could say that's great. They're probably seeing too many people. They're too busy. But where does the other half of the people go, right? It's not like there's a clinic next door for them to go to where somebody else is taking all that time. So, we're in this this sort of hole or deficit that's going to be quite hard to fix. And it's, it's not a local BC thing, right? I mean, this is happening right across the country. 
we talked about this as well, uh, and Vaughn was mentioning that even with the incentive programs that government has brought forward, the province offering this year's graduating class of physicians a $25,000 bonus, uh, loan forgiveness to go into family practice, uh, there have been no takers, uh, apparently, at this point uh, to that. So what does it say that even with that kind of an incentive, uh, doctors, uh, st- graduate students don't want to go into family practice? Well, I think that's 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 the problem. It's not just a money thing. That the job is just such a challenging job. I mean, to to do family practice well, it's by far the hardest specialty. You know, if, you, if you're going to be doing it online to a you know some new corporate service or something, and just triaging people to specialists, well, that that's not super complicated, right? But to to be a good full service family doc is is very very difficult. And then you know, part of it too, you're you're trying to run a business on top of that, which anybody who's running a small business these days knows is is very, very difficult, especially, you know, I can speak for the North Shore, especially in a place where you know, it's really expensive to run a run a business. So you're trying to to do both of those things. And, you know, I'll I'll talk to my family physician colleagues who are spending hours at night and then weekends, you know, doing paperwork and all this sort of stuff. It I, I think a lot of them just say it's just not worth it. And I, I think one of the big problems is there's so many other options for these these doctors. You know, they may go take a job at WCB or they may do private stuff or, you know, and, and although many of them are very passionate about family medicine, eventually the draw to something else that's just, you know, more conducive to some sort of normal life pulls them away right and and i mean anybody who's who's driven around vancouver look at all the the cosmetic places and it's not to pick on cosmetic stuff but you know all of us as citizens who go and get botox and other things we sort of exacerbate the problem and i know i'll get a whole bunch of hate mail for this but we we pull people into other things outside of family medicine and if somebody's going to make fifteen hundred dollars an hour doing botox how does government compete with that right how do we keep people in family medicine when they're getting $80 an hour to do that. It, it's it's really, really difficult, um, especially with the lifestyle components. Uh, and uh, Kevin, the the minister has also talked about, or the government has talked about, that they are in negotiations right now with doctors of BC on trying to come up with a new fee structure. Do you think that would at least help the issue? I think so. I think you have to decrease the disparity between specialists and and family doctors, um, and then even within family doctors, I mean, there's there's thousands of family doctors in the province who are not practicing sort of traditional family medicine because other jobs pay better, right? So, you know, government doesn't have to throw gazillions of dollars at this, and, and my colleagues hate when I say this, but they actually, government needs to say if they're listening, look, we're not giving specialists any more money. You guys are well paid. Um, we have a whole bunch of challenging economic things going on right now, but we are going to target new funding to family doctors. And and because part of it, for me at least, like my job is becoming incredibly onerous and challenging. And I'm off on holidays this week, but I'm still doing a bunch of work because there's so many patients who don't have a GP, right? And, and, you know, so I would rather be paid less or not have an increase or not keep up with inflation or whatever the magic words are but he get more family doctors out there to to help share it because more and more specialists are then burning out. And, you know, I, I used to see sort of 20, 25 patients a day, which is busy. It can be 50 patients a day. Now that's not safe. It's too many people. I don't want to do that, but, 
but these poor patients don't have somewhere else to go. And I, I can't leave somebody with no access to their medication or, you know, somebody has a cancer, they, I can't just ignore it and think, wow, you know, let's just not tell them maybe it goes away. Like somebody has to take that on and, and um, the system is very, very overburdened. We need to direct the funds to family medicine. All right, uh, Dr. Kevin McLeod, we'll leave it there for this morning. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your well-deserved time off uh, to talk with us today. Appreciate it. Jill, anytime. Thank you. All right. Kevin McLeod is an internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, with parts of this country having already declared a COVID-19 summer wave, how likely is it the public is ready to take precautions again so soon after those restrictions were lifted? Well, show contributor Raji Sohal joins us to talk more about this. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. It's like we can't catch a break with this virus. When the mask mandates were lifted, I let out a sigh of relief because for me, I trusted, okay, the health authorities, they've lifted the mandate because it's safe to do so. So good riddance to these masks. Um, For some people, the masks meant it's like time off, ready to party. For me, it was more just like a psychological thing because I actually didn't end up changing my behavior too much. I was still masking uh, with whenever I was in a closed space with people, unless we could distance uh, greatly. Um, I still mask in, in buildings, office buildings, 100% of the time, in elevators always, in grocery stores. But it's summer, kind of. If you look outside today, it doesn't feel like it. But we can meet outside, too, um, except for on days like this. Uh, So uh, there's that option. And so I just felt like, okay, a sigh of relief. But with the latest B variants of COVID-19, people are starting to get sick again. And some experts are saying uh, there's a summer surge. and We should get ready for worse in the fall. We can just cue all the groans there. Uh, Because let's face it, I'm going to say it. Masks are not fun to wear, even when I wear them very willingly in the right environments. Um, you know, I was on a plane and in airports for a total of 14 hours of travel, and I had to wear a mask from point A to B, 14 hours with a mask on, and in, it was gross. Uh, did I feel safer? For sure. But that doesn't change the fact that it was awful to wear a mask for that long. I hated every second of it. So now after we've become reaccustomed to mask, uh, to not having to wear a mask all the time um, and the choice being up to us, it's on our own that we decide when is appropriate and not. The thought of more waves of COVID-19 are making people worry that the mandates might come back, being told that we have to wear them. And I talked to an expert on the issue, Dr. Michelle Dreiger. She's a professor of community health sciences at the University of Manitoba. And she's been working um, with focus groups to look at the shifting attitudes around masking. And one thing she's found is there's a really big difference between what is recommended by health officials and then what is mandated. People see that very differently so health officials, uh, they could state all the many reasons why they suggest mask wearing. They could provide all the data, all the science on how easily airborne viruses spread. But for some, that's not enough to get them to actually put one on. It's the mandate that will make them. Here's Dr. Drieger. People generally will follow a rule. Um, but when it's a recommendation, then it becomes very discretionary. It's exactly that. It's a recommendation that they may or may not choose to follow. 
you have from a leadership perspective, people are modeling the behavior that is being recommended or encouraged, then that certainly can go a long way. So places of business, for example, that, you know, adopt a culture of wearing masks, even though the mandate is no longer there, will create an environment that supports wearing masks. By contrast, if you don't see in leadership that they are wearing those masks, it makes it really hard for others to follow. So schools are a really good case uh, in point. If teachers and principals and support staff aren't wearing masks, then it makes it much harder for kids to also follow that behavior, even if their parents might be recommending that they do it. Peer pressure also has a lot to do with it. And whether it's so much peer pressure or just wanting to fit in, right? So it's not like even somebody is um, making a comment or giving you a funny look, should you be choosing to wear a mask or not? But rather, it's just kind of this natural human tendency to want to to belong wherever we might be. And so often that is very, very quick kinds of judgments that we make about what kinds of behaviors are considered appropriate in this space. And then those are the kinds of behaviors that people might adopt. So if they see people wearing masks, then they'll likely, they'll be much more likely to pull it out. And if they don't see people wearing masks, then it's it becomes much harder when you are the odd person out. Any kind of place where you have your regular mask wearers, I think it's become such an ingrained part of their behavior or it's been, you know, something that they are personally convinced provides benefit. And of course, we certainly know from public health that wearing a mask provides benefit both uh, to the individual who wears it, but also the people around them. Those kinds of behaviors are second nature. But for Others, it's like they, as soon as the restriction was lifted, that was it. They didn't need to wear it. And because they didn't need to wear it, maybe the virus really wasn't so bad. Hmm, interesting. I get what she's saying too, but uh, I don't know about you, Raji, but I noticed uh, when the, the mandate was lifted uh, in places like you mentioned, close quarters, inside buildings, transit, uh, there were still a lot of people wearing masks. Not the same now. Yeah, it's changed. I've noticed such a shift. You know, I was uh, at an event recently that was kind of indoors, kind of outdoors. It was like a covered area, but we're seated and we're close to each other. Um, and, but there's air blowing through. It was it was outside. There, it was open on both sides. So people at the table that I was sitting at were all wearing a mask. And I thought that was very interesting, given that we were technically outdoors. I wore one to belong, just as she said. Um, I wouldn't have thought that until I had this uh, conversation with the doctor. Um, But yeah, I did wear one so that everyone else would feel comfortable with me and we would still be able to have a conversation. So I did one for that sense of belonging. Um, I got onto a bus recently and I noticed that half as many people were wearing them, uh, whereas the previous time that I had been on a bus a couple of weeks prior, it was 100% of passengers were wearing a mask. And I, and I started to think back on all these instances and, and go, hmm, when have people felt kind of that peer pressure that like, not so much wanting to like divert dirty looks, but a sense of like wanting to belong, wanting to do the right thing, uh, or the thing rather that's like expected of you. Um, this doctor that I spoke with, she's actually worked with the Red River Métis citizens in Manitoba. And uh, in her focus group work there, she found that there were very different attitudes towards restrictions because they were seen to protect elders in the community. 
I think we continue to see that here in Metro Vancouver, where when people recognize that they are going to be around the vulnerable, they might take up masks more. So there's um, a senior's home uh, near where I live. And I have noticed that a lot of people uh, who are going in to visit someone, they've been wearing their masks since the, from the moment that they've left their car, like all in the walk up to the door even. Um, just in case I'm thinking, I'm presuming, uh, they encounter someone else who's exiting and who also may be vulnerable. So I still do see that, but I think on the overall outlook, I am seeing far less masking. Yes, and I think that's probably going to stick around uh, unless there is uh, a mandate brought back. Uh, Raji, we'll leave that there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That is CKNW show contributor Raji Sohal talking about masks, no masks, and how likely people might be to put that mask back on. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, the province is putting another $500,000 to Via Sports Play Safe BC program. This is a program that aims to prevent and address harassment, abuse, discrimination, and other negative behaviors when it comes to amateur sport in this province. Now, this comes in light of Hockey Canada's sexual assault allegations, and we are going to learn more about that later later this month with committee hearings taking place and uh, as we see more and more sponsors dropping Hockey Canada and more questions about uh, the culture of silence specifically in that organization. Well joining us to talk about what the funding in BC is going to do is our Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport, Melanie Mark. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, good morning. Uh, what specifically will this $500,000 be earmarked for or targeted at to when it comes to amateur sport in this province? Well, so far, I want to really commend the work that Via Sport has done. Um, right now, all provincially funded sport organizations have adopted the BC Universal Code of Conduct, which sets out mandatory and prohibited behaviors for a BC amateur sport. Almost a 1,000 leaders and board members in funded amateur sport organizations have completed the Commit to Kids training, which is equivalent to the Canadian Centre for Child Protection Safeguarding Kids from Sexual Abuse Training Course. Each provincially funded organization is also required to feature the Safe Sport Commitments and Policies on their websites. And 200 BC sport organizations have committed to the Coaching Association of Canada's Responsible Coaching Pledge Movement. So, there's a lot of um, steps being taken uh, at the moment to ensure that we can prevent uh, abuse and maltreatment, raise awareness, um, increase support for reporting. We know that it takes a lot of courage uh, for athletes to come forward, uh, to have better mechanisms to respond to those allegations, and to ensure that there's compliance across the sports sector. So this half a million is to build that capacity for sport organizations in BC because enough's enough. Uh, we can't drag the puck on these issues. Uh, we have to shift the culture of silence. And as you can appreciate in your industry, we hear, we're hearing every month about athletes coming forward about uh, what they're enduring, uh, whether it's abuse, male treatment, physical, sexual, psychological abuse. So um, I'm very proud of the work that Via Sports is taking. Uh, 
Right. And, and you mentioned uh, the kind of the, the initiatives and the programs are, are already in place to, to prevent this as well as, as making sure people feel comfortable reporting any types of abuse if they, if they uh, are victims of that. Uh, but if that's already taking place, then what, what is the half a million dollars doing as far as where is that going to go? Well, we're building out the capacity takes an investment. So we invested $250,000 to do some of that work. The $500,000 is also to build up the training and the toolkits to ensure that there's more access. You know that you and I know that um, it takes more than one uh, report to read or one um, toolkit to read. We have to have capacity for teachers, for board members, for parents, for coaches. And so Via Sport is going to be continuing to build out that capacity. We're also working closely with the federal government. Uh, they, and through our advocacy, have created the Sport Integrity Commissioner uh, so that investigations can be done independently. That, that was a call to action from athletes, that there hasn't been a lot of trust in the mechanisms that have existed to date uh, for athletes to feel that their concerns were being taken seriously. So this is a this is a step in the right direction, in my opinion. There's always more to do, um, but I believe that we also have to do this work through a Team Canada approach. Provincially, we're leading across the country. Recently, I know that um, Manitoba's making made efforts to also build out a pathway to sport. And so I think if we collectively look at this issue and build that systemic mechanism for coaches, athletes, parents, board members to understand that we have to take maltreatment, abuse and all of these allegations seriously for athletes to protect their safety. That's why we're calling it play safe. Right. Uh, I'm looking at the federal level and, and with Hockey Canada and uh, the allegations, which are absolutely horrific of, of this allegations of, of repeated sexual assault that took place in uh, 2018. Uh, this came to light because of a lawsuit. Uh, there are so many questions now about a settlement that was reached, questions whether tax dollars were used to, to, to reach that settlement, and questions about Hockey Canada, the organization kind of investigating itself. Uh, is that something that we're looking at or, or perhaps is an issue or could be an issue on a provincial level as well? Well, I, I think some of the measures that we're doing is, is ensuring that criminal record checks are done for staff, coaches and officials. Uh, we're demanding that all provincial organizations have adopted the BC Universal Code of Conduct. We're ensuring that all board members and staff within the sport organizations complete the play safe training and we're looking at um, other measures to look at hiring practices for example Um, we don't want to overstep and and duplicate efforts with the federal government we want to take a team canada approach Um, but i as you can see with what's going on with team canada hockey canada sorry um you know the private sector is coming forward Uh, canadians are demanding accountability and they you know, we're demanding that we don't want to be bystanders. Athletes have a right to play safe, and it takes a full society effort, a full court press um, for all of us to stand up with victims that come forward from these, with these horrific allegations of abuse. It takes a lot of courage for athletes to, uh, to come forward, and as a government, we're going to take those allegations seriously at the provincial level and working with our federal, lo- 
federal counterparts to ensure that there's accountability. And how does that work then as far as, uh, I mean, obviously the, the goal is to, to make it so this doesn't happen, but when it does, like you said, it, it takes a lot of courage for victims to come forward. Uh, how do we ensure that people do feel comfortable and are able to come forward and report uh, allegations of abuse rather than sporting orga- organizations dealing with them uh, by themselves? Well, the Sport Integrity Commissioner, which was just announced last month, um, is the mechanism that's going to be looking into the allegations independently. I used to work with the Representative for Children and Youth, which is an independent office, uh, which had the mandate to look at, you know, abuse and, and allegations here in B.C., so the independence, I think, is really critical. Um, part, of, part of our conditions as a provincial government is we can link it to funding. Uh, if we're providing provincial funding, then we expect um, these organizations, the provincial, uh, provincially funded sport organizations, to hold the BC Universal Code of Conduct to the highest standards. And this is just being developed uh, through Via Sport. Um, we're building out the policy because there really wasn't a framework. Um, this systemic change takes time but to date i know that the industry the sector have come forward with the commitment that they are going to help change the culture and i will be taking that call to action from the community on what more we can be doing for for accountability whether that's pulling funding or what more we can do to support athletes but i think right now to your question of athletes coming forward and being safe they need to know that a that someone is paying attention that they are going to look into their allegations seriously and to look at what that those accountable measures are going to be, whether that's criminal or not. I will leave that to the RCMP to decide. All right. Uh, Melanie Mark, we'll leave that there today. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Thanks so much, Jill.